welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is the Room Madness Podcast, the place for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology to connect, collaborate, compete, and learn together. My name is David Leverance, and I'm thrilled you all are joining us. Our tournament is uh, getting really close to starting. Um, if you followed on Twitter, or if you've joined the newsletter, or if you've listened to this podcast before, um, you may have heard this, but just to make sure everyone knows, um, the scouting reports are almost all released now. Um, we are going to have the people region, uh, people region scouting reports coming out very soon. And then starting March 14th, you will be able to submit your own bracket and you'll have two whole weeks to review all of the content from the tournament, review these scouting reports, review all the, um, amazing information that's been uh, put out there by a lot of the fellows that have written those scouting reports. Again, there were 70 people who worked on those scouting reports, including 43 fellows, 23 faculty, three residents, and one medical student, which is an amazing collaborative effort um, to teach the entire rheumatology community about these topics. So um, you'll get to learn about the teams and uh, starting March 14th, you can submit your own bracket and you will have two weeks to do that. Um, and so if you wanna make sure you don't miss any of those updates, you don't miss the opportunity to sign up or you don't miss any other updates from Room Madness, we do have a newsletter now um, and this is available, especially for those who are not on social media and not following us on Twitter. Um, we want you all to be engaged as well. So you can sign up for our newsletter, just go to our website and you'll see subscribe plastered all over our website. Um, and you can sign up there and you will get newsletters with updates and um, uh, more information. So without further ado, I, I um, speaking of fellows who wrote the scouting reports um, and people who wrote the scouting reports, I am thrilled to be joined um, by lots of people tonight. Um, who have been involved in creating this tournament. And so I'm going to have them go around and introduce themselves very briefly. Uh, Sean, would you mind to kick us off? Sure thing. My name's Sean Carter. Um, it's the same name as Jay-Z, if it rings any bells. Uh, I am at MUSC as a first-year fellow and definitely enjoying the weather here in Charleston today. Fantastic. All right. And Malky. My name's Malky Peskin. Um, I'm unique to this podcast, being the only pediatric fellow. Um, I'm a second-year fellow at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore in the Bronx, and I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. Thanks. Uh, and Perry? Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Perry, one of the first-year fellows over at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, want to give a big shout-out to my co-fellows who helped write this uh, write this scouting report. Really excited. Uh, to be involved this year. Great. And not a fellow, uh, but uh, a representative from uh, Georgetown MedStar. Uh, Aki, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Aki Dupagaran. I'm kind of an old vet of this podcast, I, I guess, um, but I'm really thrilled to be back and so excited I could still be a part of this even as I moved on from fellowship. Thank you so much. Great. Yes. Aki was, has been with us from the beginning on some of those old podcasts that we first put out where we were like, we don't even know what's going to be in the tournament, but we're just going to talk. Yeah. That was <laughs> definitely a wing it moment, but yeah. it was great. It turned out great, didn't it? It was great. Yeah. Um, and we also have Lisa uh, with us. Lisa, would you introduce yourself again? Hi, everybody. I'm Lisa Crisioni Schreiber. I'm a rheumatologist at Duke Medical Center, and I'm the rheumatology program director at Duke, and uh, I'm also the uh, an educator, and I'm the vice chair for education for the Duke Department of Medicine, and I'm really excited to be here and be involved with Room Madness because um, 
my job is I get to do none of the work and have all of the fun. <laughs> that may be true uh, somewhat, but actually it's not because Lisa has been a fantastic mentor throughout this entire project. And there were lots of uh, late nights where she was sending me revisions on this uh, grant proposal uh, long ago and lots of uh, help along the way. So that's uh, there's plenty of work that you're doing. Thank you. Um, but okay, so here's our goal tonight. So um, for this episode, we are reviewing the teams in the machines region. So if you've been following along already, um, you have had a chance to listen or read the scouting reports for the cells region and the animal house region. And we are now up to the machines region um, with one, re one region left to go, and that's the people region, which will be coming up soon. Um, and so in the cell, in the machines region, um, we have four teams, and those are two teams looking at the influence of artificial intelligence and machine learning, one in uh, distinguishing JIA subtypes and another in predicting response to TNF inhibitors. And then we have two teams in the machines region where we are exploring fancy new technology like dual energy CT scanning in gout and PET scans for large vessel vasculitis. So we are going to go around and review each of those topics um, uh, very briefly, uh, for full details, we would really encourage you to explore the scouting reports. And then we are going to discuss who we think is going to win in this region, noting, of course, as we always do, that we have absolutely no influence on what the Blue Ribbon Panel decides. Um, and by the way, the Blue Ribbon Panel has just been announced, and they are fantastic. Um, we are excited. Um, so please, you can uh, check out who's on the Blue Ribbon Panel on our website. Um, all right. So uh, we are thrilled that Malky is our first uh, pediatric fellow representative. Uh, and really, this is the te first team that really highlights a pediatric rheumatology concept in, uh, in room madness. And so it's only appropriate that we would ask you to go first tonight and uh, talk us through your team on uh, machine learning and JA subtypes. Thank you. Sure, I'd love to start us off. Um, so... Just also to sort of echo what Perry said, definitely want to give a shout out to my co-fellows. It was really fun working together to put this um, into a report. Um, so as probably most of you on this podcast right now um, aren't as aware, so JIA, um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, has a very complicated classification criteria where we split up the diagnosis into seven different subtypes, um, which is, I know, unique to pediatrics. Like we like to think of it as the kid version of RA, but we certainly classify it in a much more complicated fashion, which is usually what we do in pediatrics. Um, so these subtypes come into play clinically when we're discussing prognosis or different choices of treatment, risk of different disease complications um, and or association um, such as uveitis, which is more of a risk in oligojay at young ages, or the association with IBD, which is more of a risk in ERA, or I think you guys just call them like spondylos, if that's a word. <laughs> um, so the thing is, even though we love our complicated classification systems in pediatrics, kids really switch classes all the time. We're really not always right at the beginning. Um, and also with a lot more research that's been going on um, with topics like genetic profiling, 
there's been a lot of discussion about whether this classification criteria is really very accurate. And people are starting to move towards different types of classification criteria possibilities. Um, so the article that we reviewed talked about a very new way of thinking about types of JIA using machine learning. So just to sort of quickly touch on machine learning a little bit with my very, very surface level understanding, um, it's a unique way to help make predictions and classifications more efficiently based on like very big data analysis. Um, it's a subset of artificial intelligence, um, which allows machines to automatically learn from past data or a set of training data without really explicit model programming. Um, so I think the most common way that we kind of more routinely come about this in like on our daily basis is how like our Instagram and Facebook accounts know how to target ads to exactly like what you're thinking in your brain without even saying it out loud. It's kind of scary. Um, so I can't say I really fully understand how that works, but I know the algorithm uses machine learning. So I know that's, you know, sort of a way to think about it on the daily basis. Um, so in this article, machine learning was investigated as a way to better classify patients with JIA um, and specifically based on their immune signatures and cytokine staining um, by comparing and contrasting the different subtypes of JIA in multiple different um, categorizing systems. And then results were able to show that there were some shared immune signatures and some very unique immune signatures among the different subtypes. So I think this study is really important because it really shows how um, incredibly valuable machine learning could be in a field like ours. In peds and in adult rheumatology, to be able to really choose immunomodulatory therapy based on specific immune profiles, um, that could be really cool. Um, it could definitely lead to, you know, different ways in how we practice and how to really classify different types of arthritis. Maybe, you know, in the adult world, you guys want to make some more classifications with um, more specific types and really could change the way we choose treatment and discuss prognosis with different types of patients. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate your uh, excellent review also of what machine learning is, because I think we all have just a surface <laughs> level of it. But, you know, I think um, your report and um, Perry's report are going to highlight how this is something that we we do actually need to know a little bit about because it's going to teach us something about our diseases. And thanks. So that was a great review. And it's a fascinating article. Um, even as an adult rheumatologist that doesn't think a lot about JIA on a regular basis, it really helped me to think about JIA. Um, uh, and also just to, like you mentioned, think a little bit about what this could mean for all kinds of rheumatic, rheumatic conditions. Um, so anyway, uh, we will talk more about that later, but um, thank you. That was fantastic. Um, Perry um, from Cleveland Clinic, uh, you all were paired up in the first round um, as the other machine learning team uh, and your team is looking at uh, using machine learning to predict TNF inhibitor responses. So talk, tell us about your team. All right. <clears throat> so for all my fellow rheumatologists out there, my roomies, if you will, you got to be like me. You got to be tired of the guesswork involved in choosing which TNF inhibitor to start your patient on. You got to be equally as tired of the decision of which TNF inhibitor to switch to or whether to abandon TNF inhibitors altogether. 
when it fails to work? Do you ever just wish you had a TNF inhibitor sorting hat from the Hogwarts School of Medicine? Because <laughs> I do. Well, our team's base article might just have the best, next best thing. I'm talking TNF inhibitors are such an important class of biologic BMARDs, but the unfortunate truth is about 30% of patients experience primary failure. Enter machine learning. Our base article looked at the role that machine learning could play in predicting TNF inhibitor response by examining more data points than we could ever hope to without our machine colleagues, specifically looking at differences in gene expression and methylation in immune cells. Our author's goal was realized of accurate prediction of response to TNF inhibitors. This, this represents a large step towards personalized medicine, something that we all want to treat our patients in a personalized manner, uh, better uh, increased disease remission and happier patients. I think we all know happier patients equals happy rheumatologists. It's great. Thanks. Yeah, this is an interesting topic as well. It, I mean, it's, um, we all, are tired of that guesswork. Um, and I love the idea of a, uh, TNF inhibitor sorting hat. I don't know, you know, like if you put it on and you just say not Slytherin, not Slytherin, does it, do you, do you get to choose? I don't know. Not in Fleximab, not in Fleximab. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know who Slytherin actually would be, but anyway, uh, just <laughs> interesting comparison. Anyway, um, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, um, especially wondering what Aki and Sean are going to think about that matchup. It'll be fun to fun to see. Um, I have my own thoughts, but I'll try to remain silent. Um, and I'm sure Lisa has nothing to say about the topic. But all right, moving on to fancy new machines. So we're uh, relieving our machine colleagues, as Perry just referenced them, um, and to our um, uh, to another kind of machine colleagues, I guess, is um, these imaging studies. So, um, Aki, uh, yes, you know, veteran of the podcast, uh, tell us about uh, dual energy CT scanning in gout. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Okay, so dual energy computed tomography. It's dual, it's DECT. Um, for the identification of gout, I think is like a total game changer. And I can actually speak from personal experience because at our center, we use DECT technology pretty much on a weekly basis. Um, and it's been an invaluable tool for a condition that we in rheumatology are going to see on a daily and perhaps multi-daily basis. Um, I think we can all kind of agree that gout is pretty straightforward, um, but there's those patients that are going to sneak up on you where the traditional approach is going to fail. And uh, what I mean by that is those patients where you can't aspirate the affected joint, where there's this atypical presentation or location of the suspected gout, when the available data from synovial fluid, the serum studies or other imaging modalities, they're equivocal or they conflict with each other. Um, you know, when there is involvement of extra articular structures like in theses or ligaments or tendons, or perhaps even when patients who you think have gout and are treating them for gout, but they're not responding in the way that you would expect. These are like real clinical challenges that we have either all experienced or will experience. Um, and that's why this non-invasive and cost-effective option is so important like right now. Um, we, we all know gout 
can be like a great mimicker of some of our other inflammatory arthritis. So using a, a tool that could potentially help us avoid misdiagnosis and unnecessary, potentially harmful treatments for our patients, I think it's like a no-brainer. So um, in our scouting report, which is amazing, um, we <laughs> mentioned a base article that uh, written by Singh and colleagues, I think it was published in uh, Rheumatology Oxford um, in October of 2021, I believe which compared DECT versus ultrasound, either alone or together for the diagnosis of gout. Um, and, and they basically confirmed that I'm making none of this up. DECT really, really works. Um, it works accurately to detect gout in the feet and ankles and knees. And you don't have to do multiple sites. You don't need to use it with an ultrasound machine as well. So it's really great. So if you don't actually believe me, I think you should just believe them. And that's all I have. That's great. Thanks, Aki. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear that you use it a lot. Actually, it's not something that I have used a lot. I have only used um, really once or twice, but I have found it very useful. And this article really highlighted the true, you know, comparing that sensitivity and specificity to ultrasound, you know, that, that, that was one of my biggest questions is, like, should I just have, you know, one of my colleagues put a probe on this? And, you know, I'm not an ultrasound expert, but I think, I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of rheumatologists out there have that question, you know, what, okay, should I do this or should I do the ultrasound? And I think this article really helps answer that question. It doesn't necessarily tell you, um, it, I mean, it, it, it helps you understand the numbers. And I, I, I love that. And you're, yes, yeah, y'all scouting report did a fantastic job. Um, thank you so much to y'all's fellows, um, of yes, reviewing awesome. that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's great. It's interesting. Um, but everybody loves vasculitis, uh, you know, Do they? Um, okay. I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it's fascinating, <laughs> but, uh, if they don't love vasculitis, they love PET scans, I guess. So, um, Sean, uh, round us out with the PET scan and large vessel vasculitis, uh, scouting report. Oh yeah, I'd definitely be happy to do that. So I want to say that PET scans aren't necessarily the new kids on the block like dual energy is. Uh, it's been around for a while and in the honored tradition of stealing uh, things from oncologists, maybe we can take and liberate uh, the utility of PET scans uh, in some of our diseases like giant cell arteritis and tachyasia. So we had um, a study by Grayson that was trying to evaluate uh, the role of PET in large vessel vasculitis. And so for PET, essentially, we're trying to go from the outside in, take a non-invasive approach to see how active uh, somebody might be in terms of inflammation of their vessels. So give somebody a radio tracer, let them sit in a dark, cold room by themselves for 60 minutes to 120 minutes. And then you get to see uh, the vessels light up the board. Um, so they took a scan at baseline, found fairly good sensitivity and specificity. And then they also kind of compared people over time to see how they uh, light up when they're in clinical remission. And it's been found that, you know, PET scans can still be active when somebody's in a clinical remission. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy uh, in what we might think and what you might see on imaging. And this can uh, lead to some future questions for us. And thankfully, uh, there's been development of the PET-VAS score, which I think is a pretty baller term, but the PET-Vascular Activity Score. Um, to try to help predict uh, who might have a clinical relapse. 
in the future. And so this could help guide kind of treatment and thinking about who we could withdraw treatment in. So uh, definitely, you know, biologics can be pretty harmful for some people, and it'd be great if we can uh, minimize exposure for that to people. I will say, though, that we do have some limitations on our team where if uh, somebody's on prednisone, that can limit your sensitivity uh, if they've been on it for more than a week. So maybe not everything's rosy in our court, but uh, it's a little bit more interesting than gout. And looking at the blue ribbon panel, I think we have a few uh, vasculitis interested people. Wow. Sean already brings up the elephant in the room here. So thank you, Sean. That was great. But what a way to end your scouting report of um, now starting to really play the game of room madness, which is, um, which is really now that we know who the blue ribbon panel is um, really looking at the panel and seeing what the panel is going to vote, because that is how you get points in room madness. Um, you know, if you, uh, make your predictions that match those of the blue ribbon panel, that is how you win. Um, and, uh, there was someone, uh, whose name was room boss in last tournament that did that perfectly. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> um, that, uh, that, that's what you're looking to do. So, okay. And again, we are about to talk about who we think is going to win. Um, but we have no influence over the Blue Ribbon panel. Um, I promise we absolutely have no influence over them. And so I, I actually, Lisa, I'm going to throw this to you first. Um, yeah. You, you know, you have, and I will just start off by saying um, our entire conversation is about to follow. Um, none of it is, uh, we are not voting for the best scouting report because all of the scouting reports are fabulous. There is no scouting report is better than the others. Every single one of their, uh, the fellows that work together on these reports did a phenomenal job. Um, and so, you know, win or lose, it's not going to be on whether or not the scouting report was good. It's, it's really all about the concepts. And we'll remind our listeners um, that, that you don't have to stop at the scouting report. You are more than welcome to take the scouting report as an introduction to this concept and really dive in. And I bet you that is what the Blue Ribbon panel is doing, is they are going to the actual core articles and they are reading these articles and they are uh, basing their decisions on that. So anyway, um, just with that, Lisa, I'm just, um, maybe you don't necessarily need to make your picks, but as you've listened to some of uh, the, you know, the, our, our participants here tonight talk about their scouting reports, what are some of the big questions that you think are out there in this region? Um, one of some of the big learning concepts that people are going to get out of it, and how are you going to be making your decision about who wins this region? Okay, um, so some of the big learning points from this. Before I get to that, I'm going to get to what I'm stuck on just a little bit on um, both the dual energy CT and the PET scanning topics. And that to me is the question of the gold standard. And this to me is a question that comes up over and over again. And I, I feel sorry for the vasculitis world, especially the large vessel vasculitis world, because they have a real problem with the gold standard in that, you know, that you guys said it right in your scouting report. You can't, you don't just go around biopsying large arteries, right? So you never really have a gold standard. So I'm sort of struggling with that in the vasculitis topic uh, in terms of like, 
How do we really tell what's active and not active? Maybe all those PET scans that lit up actually mean that the disease was active and that our clinical measures are wrong. Or maybe the clinical measures are completely correct and PET scans are not very useful. I, I just don't know the answer to that. I think that they did make progress, but I just, I kind of can't get out of my head the question of what is the gold standard? And the same thing for the dual energy CT. Not every single patient who was in that study had a crystal proven diagnosis. And, you know, so that, that to me just brings some of the sensitivities and specificities into question. So those are, those are some of my points. If you really want to get critical with the articles, um, then going on to the other bracket and thinking about the JIA subtypes versus the, the TNF uh, predictive models. I think that you know, you're not really struggling so much with the gold standard because like with the JIA predictive models, we're actually trying to figure out what the disease is and what the gold standard is. So I think it's just an interesting way of flipping two concepts kind of are almost polar opposites in this bracket. And um, I love the idea of taking all this data, but then now what, what are all the pediatric rheumatologists going to do if there's just two categories? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, know. and you're yeah you're ref, you're referencing the fact that it seemed like the major signal is that there is systemic JIA and there is not systemic JIA at least in this molecular phenotyping is that is that fair Malky? Um, yeah, I, and I also think that you know that specific point is not a new piece of information. Like I think that systemic JIA being so incredibly different from a phenotype and really like an immune signature perspective is not new. That's something that we've been discussing for a long time. And there's been lots of people that sort of want to almost consider it its own disease in entirety. I mean, we treat it very differently. It's, it's really very different. So that like specific result from the article, I agree is not so new. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's an interesting question. Lisa, yeah, so you, those are kind of those are kind of some of my thoughts, and I think in terms of the TNF response criteria, yes, that is that is what we're all looking for is something that we can just plug in, boop, 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 plug in all the data, and then it'll tell us you should get this medicine, and that would be lovely. We're definitely not there yet. I like that there's progress being made. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if the blue, 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 blue we have access to right now is uh, methylation profiles. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but fascinating is a proof of concept. I love it. I so this is this is fascinating, and uh, you know I don't know. So uh, I agree. You know the the PetFast or the the PetScan article. Um, it it is fascinating to think about what is active vasculitis. But I I think another thing that I wanted to bring out from that that I I personally really enjoyed was how they developed this PetVast because I think. Um, one thing that I was never really clear on is, you know, we, we kind of say on the wards, you know, well, if we just get a PET scan, like we'll, we'll make sure they don't have cancer and we'll see if they have vasculitis, right. which is great. But then, um, you know, what does it mean if they have active, uh, an active PET scan? And I, I do think that it was really helpful that they developed this PET VAS score, which actually seemed to be the best way to predict the risk of relapse. Um, and I think it's important to, to know that our radiologists are probably not doing a pet vas. Um, and I don't think that's standard care. And so I, I think um, 
our use of these PET scans is very different from this article, but uh, maybe we need to be moving towards that. Um, so it raises some interesting questions, but all right, I'm going to throw this back to the fellows. Um, Malky and Perry, what do you all think about the fancy um, imaging machines? Uh, you know, Malky, I'm sure you see gout a lot as a pediatric <laughs> rheumatologist, but I will say there were there were kids, there were takiasus and some kids, there were some pediatric vasculitis um, involved in the um, the PET scan one at least. So, um, I, you know, yeah, what do you all, I guess maybe I'm, I'm probably leading you to who I think you think is going to win from that matchup, but who do you think is going to win that matchup? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to be honest and say that gout is certainly not at all within our scope of practice. Usually we actually had one gout patient this year and we just like straight up referred them to adult rheumatology. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just based on the scouting reports, which I read and the conversations that we're having, one thing that came to mind for me is like how PET scans are just so incredibly difficult to get. I know like you certainly in pediatrics. Um, and I feel like the utility of it would really have to be like incredible for it to become really more standard of care um, or a gold standard even. Um, I don't know how it works in every hospital. I've kind of only been in the same hospital system for a very long time, but I know that, you know, getting PET scans for our patients is so, so hard in terms of the dual CT and gout. Um, I don't have so much to say about gout. <laughs> yeah, fair. And on that note, it is worth noting there is a pediatric rheumatologist on the blue ribbon panel. So, mm. um, yeah, um, Dr. Lewandowski from the NIH. Uh, so anyway, uh, just putting that out there. Um, so there may be some of those making the decisions that are like our friend Malky here. So anyway, um, all right, Perry, what do you think? A tough matchup in the first in the first round, certainly. The practical instant gratification person within me loves dual energy CT in gout, especially since I just did it a few weeks ago for a difficult case and clinched a diagnosis and no needle poke, happy patient. No, we're treating him for the right thing now. So I love that that's something that we can do today. Whereas I know this pet fast score is certainly really intriguing as far as predicting relapse, but maybe still in the validation stages of, of applying that. Also don't love fighting to get PET scans. Yeah. Yep. The fight is, the fight is real. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to throw it up to the, um, uh, the other fellows what do you, to see what you all think about the matchups that you didn't you, you didn't specifically write for. So, Sean, um, what do you think about the JAI subtypes and TNF inhibitor response? Yeah, so, I mean, I almost feel like a pediatric fellow thinking about gout when I think about JIA, but, you know, <laughs> these kids are growing up and we're going to start seeing them in the adult world too. So, I, I well, more than we do see them already. So I think there is some value to be thinking about this and learning about this ahead of time for when I'm starting to see more and more JIA in the future. But that being said, I'm definitely about some instant gratification and using a medication that I know is going to work from the get-go instead of saying, okay, we'll try this. And hopefully in about two to three months, we'll have an idea of if you might get a response to this. 
and then we'll go from there. But uh, if we can do some beep, boop, beep, and uh, know maybe, you know, an hour or two, then that would be pretty great. So I got to tip my hat to TNF, unfortunately. All right. He's making a call. Um, Aki, what do you think? Yeah. So I think anybody that knows me knows that these studies were like way over my head. So like nobody <laughs> listening should take me seriously at all uh, when I'm talking about this. Which is why we invited you to be on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I'm just here <laughs> for fun. Um, so I, um, I so appreciate there being a pediatric study and a pe- like a pediatric rheumatologist in training and also a pediatric uh, rheumatologist on our blue ribbon panel. I think that's so important and it really does need to be represented. Um, I um, definitely am biased as like an adult rheumatologist that I just see more clinical utility for me uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm going to regret saying that when I have a JIA patient walk in the door like tomorrow or something, but um I just feel like that for me is like a daily struggle, just really knowing um, how I can best personalize medications for my patients. Um, But I really appreciate how hopeful both of these categories feel um, compared to maybe the imaging groups of this uh, section where it feels like that's like more right now, like practical, like we can use these feasibly, but this seems like hope for our children, hope for something better. I really like it. I love that. Hope for our children. I mean, that's great. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of with you. And I, Aki, I like that you say that, that kind of thing, like, you know, don't listen. I will say that is the entire spirit of room madness is, you know, how many rheumatologists really know all the ins and outs of um, deep machine learning and immune profiling. We don't, but we know what uh, TNF inhibitors are and we use them on a daily basis and we see JIA patients and um, we desperately want to understand them more. And so one of the spirits of Room Madness is um, taking that plunge into uh, pieces of literature that we probably would have never picked up had they not been in this silly fake tournament. Uh, <laughs> and so hopefully it ends. It ends um, I, I, I'm really glad um, that we've, uh, we've, we've had, we have your comments, Aki, on this. This is great. You're welcome. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I will just throw in my two cents on this. I, so I feel like um, the TNF inhibitor machine learning is going to be flashy and it's going to get a lot of adult rheumatologists attention, but I would just encourage all of us to really think hard about um, the, the true implications of, and Maki, I, I don't know, I'll see what you think about this, but think about all of the different uh, medications that we have for rheumatoid arthritis. We have so many. We have so many treatment options and this study just compared two treatment options. It's a, it's a proof of concept, uh, but it's not something that's feasible right now. It's um, two different medications that honestly, the insurance companies may say, you can't use either one of them because we prefer this other one. Um, and whereas Malky's, uh, you know, the JIA subtypes paper, you know, it, it's, it's a start. It's not, doesn't, it's not the end all be all of, you know, let's redefine the JIA subtypes, but it's, it's asking that question and it's giving us more information about what JIA really is at its core. And I think there's nothing more revolutionary and foundational to what we do as doctors is knowing what our diseases actually are. Um, And so I think that's really powerful and I'm excited about the JIA subtypes. Um, I don't know, Maki, what do you think? 
Yeah, no, that's actually exactly what um, my co-fellows and I um, and our attendings, when we discussed it, that we were excited about. It just sort of more than just, you know, maybe defining or redefining the types of JIA, it just kind of points to this like larger, um, this larger theme of real like precision, precision medicine in rheumatology, um, which is something that could be applied to not just JIA or RA, but really all of our diagnoses, pediatric and adult, and just the concept of through something like machine learning, really being able to more precisely classify and treat our patients. So that's what we're excited about. That's great. I'm excited. This, you all, um, I am so excited about this region. I think it's a fascinating region. I think, um, I think it will, I think the, the, PET scans. And I think people come, will come for the PET scans and the dual energy CTs because they're doing them and they don't know if they should, but I think they will stay for the machine learning. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see. Anybody want to make a call? Who's going to win the, win the region? Let's just real quick. All right. You, you can only, you, all you can say is who you think is going to win the region. That's it. Uh, we're going to go around. Sean. I'm not going to vote for myself, so I'm going to vote for TNF. TNF, all right. Perry. I am going to vote for myself and vote for TNF. <laughs> right. Aki. I'm also going to vote for myself, DECT. <laughs> nice. Malky. I kind of also want to vote for myself. I don't yeah. know. It was like beginner's luck, like the underdog, you know. I don't know. I think we have a chance. Love it. Lisa, all right. I'm calling dual energy CT. Wow. Okay. Love it. Oh my gosh, right. Sean, you're the only like good person. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we're finding out things about each of us. And, you know, I won't go to Sorry. bed peacefully tonight, but y'all may think about your life choices. Uh, that's, that's great. You're all great people because you're crazy about rheumatology and we love it that you're in, you're, you're all doing this. All right. I'm going to transition really quickly to our last segment of the podcast for this um, this episode, and that's focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion. As you all know, this is a theme that we are bringing into all of our conversations throughout the tournament this year. Um, it has uh, we have engaged con concepts like um, diversity in training for rheumatology fellowship. Um, we have talked about um, diversity as it applies to clinical trial enrollment and developing new treatments, especially among. Um, black patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and we've talked about disparities in care for patients with osteoarthritis and gout in the last episode. And um, this episode, I think, uh, because it's our first ever episode focusing in particular on a pediatric topic, I thought it would be a, a very good idea to highlight an article that reviews um, pediatric rheumatology disparities in care. Um, just it, if a lot of our listeners are adult, rheumatolo adult rheumatologists, um, they may be interested in hearing uh, maybe for the first time a little bit about what's known and what isn't known. And it also just so happens that one of the articles that I, or the, the article that I'd like to highlight was actually written by one of Malky's um, co-fellows, uh, Dr. Alicia Akinshate, um, along with Tamar Rubenstein and some other colleagues there, um, who wrote a really uh, phenomenal and comprehensive article on uh, disparities in care in pediatric rheumatology. And we're going to link to this article in the show notes, because if you have any questions about this topic, we'd really actually encourage you all to, 
reference it. But um, basically, this article is a, a, a really in-depth review of what's known and what isn't known about disparities in care in pediatric rheum rheumatic diseases. And so very briefly, I'm just going to hit some of the high notes that I found from this article and um, see if any of you have any other uh, questions or comments about it. But um, basically, the article reviewed disparities in care for minoritized individuals with childhood onset lupus and JAA. In particular, childhood onset lupus um, disparities there mirror a lot of the disparities that we see in adult lupus. Um, noting, of course, that uh, many uh, cases of childhood lupus are actually even more severe um, uh, than adult lupus um, and uh, the stakes there. Um, but they, they also discuss that even though we know that there are a lot of care gaps um, for these conditions, we actually know very little about some of the socio-ecological contributor, uh, contributors uh, to those disparities, which actually limits our ability to address them. And so they kind of highlight a, a research need there. Um, and actually just a clinical care need of um, looking into socioeconomic factors and, and getting help for our patients when they need them. Um, but uh, it also, they also reviewed how little we know about disparities for other more rare pediatric rheumatic conditions. A lot of the literature apparently is really focused on pediatric uh, or childhood lupus and JIA, and there's really very little known on disparities in other um, uh, pediatric conditions and um, kind of a call um, for more research into that area. Um, and actually, they also highlight, and I, I think this is important for us to think about um, in terms of disparities um, everywhere, there's actually almost nothing known about disparities in indigenous youth with rheumatic diseases. Um, uh, they, um, there's actually even very little known about health outcomes in indigenous youth with pediatric rheumatic conditions, um, let alone disparities. And so that was an interesting highlight that I, I thought was worth um, noting and uh, definitely something to um, look look for watching um, so that they can be addressed moving forward. Um, and then finally, I think this is an interesting tie into our discussion. One of our first discussions on diversity um, and our very first time that we address this in terms of uh, training in rheumatology, um, they highlight that really a lot of the outcomes of children with rheumatic diseases tend to be worse when um, those children and their families have to travel longer or have less access to pediatric rheumatology care. Um, and this is threatened substantially by the current and uh, the current shortage of pediatric rheumatologists that is really predicted or projected to be to worsen substantially over the next few years. And so I don't know, I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, we try to think about tangible ways of addressing um, these disparities on a, on a daily basis in our practices and in our research endeavors. But I was just thinking, you know, if there's any medical students out there listening um, uh, to this podcast, and if any of those medical students are interested in doing something to address disparities in care, what better way to do that to, than to simply become a pediatric rheumatologist? Um, just by your very presence of doing what you do, you are contributing to reducing disparities in care by getting kids access to the care that they need. Um, so, uh, I um, am thrilled that we had some pediatric rheumatology in this, uh, in this region. I'm thrilled we have it in this tournament. And I'm really uh, glad we could talk a little bit about um, what's known and what isn't known in terms of disparities in care for these kids. Obviously, this is a gigantic topic. Um, and this is also a gigantic article that we're <laughs> referencing. Um, and so I think uh, anyone interested in this topic should go and read it. And again, in the show notes. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, I'm going to stop there, but anyone have any um, comments about that? Um, Malky, you know, you're a pediatric rheumatologist. I'm sure you see this um, on a daily basis. Um, uh, 
What do you think about the idea of people going out there and being pediatric rheumatologists so that they can um, address these disparities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really good point. Something we think about all the time, um, especially in pediatric rheumatology. Um, I know there, it's been like shown that a lot of people's interests are sort of sparked um, in rheumatology or pediatric rheumatology specifically, really as medical students. Um, and we certainly try very hard to engage our students in our clinics and on the floor when they're rotating with us. Um, and I just think it's really important in the field in general to be very open-minded and inviting with our students that we work with, because I think you're 100% correct. Um, just sort of inspiring the next generation of physicians to become pediatric rheumatologists, um, keeping in mind that it really could have such, you know, serious implications for the field in terms of um, helping issues with diversity and equity in care. Um, it's really important. Thanks. That's great. Well, I am, uh, I, I, I am just so thrilled that we had the chance to have this conversation this evening. I have really enjoyed this episode. Um, I've really enjoyed y'all's comments. I loved your scouting reports. They are fun. They are educational. Um, I have learned so much from them and I learned so much from you all this evening. Um, and I think our uh, participants and our listeners are going to learn uh, a lot from you all as well. Um, so I'm just, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I think we will end the podcast here, but again, um, to all the listeners, please um, connect with us in all the other ways you can um, go to the Room Madness website, join our newsletter, find us on Twitter, hashtag Room Madness. Um, uh, we are all over the place and you can find the scouting reports on the rheumatologist website. Thanks to the editorial staff of the e-newsroom newsletter to uh, partner with us to put those out and, um, look to submit your brackets starting March 14th. All right. Thanks everybody.